Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 91 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's show, we have an article about scams, phishing and data breaches which have blossomed during the COVID-19 pandemic. We have an update on the use of 12ID19 tracking apps across the UK and the EU. We have news that 1 in 10 UK remote home workers don't believe that they are currently GDPR compliant when they're working at home. It's obviously a major concern now that we're in 12ID19 pandemic situation. And then we have a follow-up on an article from last week and that the European Commission is now raising concerns over the Hungarian government's actions in attempting to override GDPR with their own regulations during the COVID-19 crisis. We then move away from COVID-19 and we have an article that the European Data Protection Board says that website cookie walls must improve that their current status is not satisfying the requirements of GDPR with regard to user consent for storage of data, particularly the storage of data in third-party cookies. We then had the results of a survey which shows that 40% of IT security budgets are being spent on the burden of compliance and 43% of organisations have either reported themselves or been reported to their relevant data protection and authority in the last 12 months. Following on from that survey, we also have a note of the top four GDPR violations found in the survey. This week it's fair to say that the whole security community is a bit bemused. A massive data file, some 90 gigabytes of data, of personal data, has appeared on the internet. And as of yet, no one knows where it came from or who put it there. So we have some news on that. We then have news of data breaches at Interserve and BAM Construct UK. And finally this week, we finished with news that a GDPR breach has been alleged over the use of Android advertising IDs, and that breach has been reported to the Austrian Data Protection Authority, and we've provided full details in our article. So, as always, a good mixed bag of items for you this week we hope you find the program useful and informative as always we're very open to your feedback if you have any feedback for us please send it to podcasts at insurety.co.uk that's e-n-s-u-r-e-t-y.co.uk unfortunately due to the volume of correspondence we receive we can't reply to each piece of correspondence individually but we do look to incorporate your suggestions wherever we can into future episodes of the gdpr weekly show your coronavirus roundup from the GDPR Weekly Show. We begin this week with a look at the explosion in scams and phishing attacks during the pandemic. The UK's National Fraud and Cybercrime Reporting Centre, Action Fraud, has reported a 400% increase in coronavirus-related fraud reports in March alone. And let's remember March was when, really, coronavirus started in the UK, so it's probably only got worse in April and May, but we don't yet have those figures. It's fair to say that many of these scams target elderly people, including encouraging them to switch accounts online while bank branches are shut, asking for donations to help the NHS and NHS charities, and door-to-door home testing for COVID-19. 
But it's not just individuals who are being hit, companies are being hit too. Largely, it's thought because of the increased number of people working from home. Remote working, with its potential for unmonitored computer systems, out-of-date antivirus software and unsecured Wi-Fi, together with the use of USB flash drives and the boom in video conferencing, whether that be by Zoom, Skype, Teams or whatever, all increase the risk compared to usual working conditions. Some companies may also have suspended basic security protocols such as two-factor authentication in order to get remote working off the ground quickly. The three most commonly reported scams targeting business at this time are firstly, scams related to or pretending to be from the Government Job Retention Scheme and the Grant or Tax Refunds. The Government's Job Retention Scheme, which is paying 80% of the salaries of furlough staff, went live on Monday the 20th of April 2020. The Cross-Sector Fraud Prevention Association, CFAS, reported an immediate rise in business owners being targeted by phishing emails purporting to be from HMRC. Businesses are also receiving phishing emails telling them that their cash grant or tax refund application has been processed and ask them to click on a link to download an attachment. That attachment then goes on to infect systems with malware. The second type of scam affecting companies is invoice or mandate scams. Mandate fraud occurs when an employee is deceived into changing a regular payment mandate, be that a direct debit or a standing order or even a bank transfer, when contacted by an individual purporting to be from a supplier or other typical payee. Employees may find it harder when remote working to adopt standard security and verification processes to check that the change in the instruction is genuine. And thirdly are CEO impersonation scams. This is where a scam email purports to be from a company CEO or managing director or other senior figure in the organisation and is sent typically to the finance team requesting that an urgent payment is made to a third party. The email is often received when the sender is away from the office making it difficult to check whether or not it's genuine. It's not yet possible to put a true cost on these scams but when you bear in mind that mandate and CEO impersonation scams result in misdirected payments, in other words, the payer sends payment to someone other than the intended payee, and despite progress made by the payment systems regulator and the industry and the authorised push payments code, confirmation of payee checks are still not the norm. The reimbursement of sums by the paying bank will be problematic if the employee fails to take usual verification steps. Both individuals and companies are victims to fake HMRC emails or indeed fake courier or tech support emails that result in malware infection and this raises different and potentially more complex issues for companies as cyber criminals gain access to devices and networks and what is stored on them. Data may be stolen, used now or stored for later sale on the dark web. Also on the rise is ransomware by which the compromised data on the target's computer is locked and payment is demanded before the ransom data is decrypted and access is returned to the target. A 2019 report by IBM Ponymon found that a data breach cost the company an average of 3.88 million US dollars. This figure is based on interviews with more than 500 companies that have experienced recent data breaches. Various cost factors were taken into account by IBM Ponymon for the report including legal, regulatory and technical activities, loss of brand equity, customer turnover and the drain on employee mental health and productivity. 
which of course given employee mental health issues with so much home working and stress especially amongst furloughed staff at the moment then this drain on employee mental health and productivity is probably now more a factor than it ever has been. So with all this being said what can a company reasonably do to protect itself? Well on the 20th of April 2020 a new cross-governmental cyber aware campaign was launched by the National Cyber Security Centre, NCSC, a part of GCHQ, working alongside the Home Office, the Cabinet Office and the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, DCMS. As part of this, the NCSC has issued separate guidance for large businesses, SMEs, sole traders and the self-employed, and individuals on various topics including the secure use of video conferencing services and mitigating against the risks of malware and ransomware. The top level tips include, wherever possible, ensuring two-factor authentication is in place, making sure that your software is up to date and any security fixes are installed, affording employees the lowest administration settings possible to ensure the impact of any phishing incident is limited, obviously making regular backups and of course that becomes harder with more remote working, and embedding a culture of stopping, not rushing and verifying any request to make an urgent payment, change supplier bank details or provide financial information. The NCSC has also launched a suspicious email reporting service co-developed with the City of London Police to make it easier for corporates and individuals to forward suspicious emails to the NCSC. In its first week after launching, 395 phishing sites had been taken down. Other organisations have launched complementary initiatives. The National Trading Standards have launched businesses against scams with tools to upskill the workforce. CFAS has published guidance and reports on the latest scams and which the consumer organisation has launched the Scams Alert Service. Companies should make use of these resources depending on their individual needs and ensure that the cybersecurity message is disseminated to employees through education and testing. The message should be clear that this is training rather than an attempt to catch anyone out, given employee stress levels will be high at this time. We will no doubt return to this in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay in. Stay safe. A quick update on the various tracing apps across Europe, which basically are ones based on the Google Apple solution and also the one which NHS Digital is developing for the UK, which is currently undergoing a large-scale initial test with citizens on the Isle of Wight. This week, MEPs have got into the debate about the use of these tracking apps, and the MEPs have restressed three core concerns. One is that they are saying that use of the apps must always be voluntary, that they must be non-discriminatory and that use of the apps must be transparent. Secondly, that the apps must be strictly limited to contact tracing relating to COVID-19. And thirdly, that authorities must ensure that data is deleted as soon as the situation allows, i.e. the pandemic eases. In the plenary debate on Thursday, MEPs noted that together with other COVID-19 related measures such as social distancing, masks and testing, contact tracing apps were helping to potentially curb the spread of the pandemic. However, most MEPs highlighted that the safety of citizens' personal data and privacy needed to be guaranteed when it came to use of these apps. 
Most EU countries have already launched or intend to launch a mobile tracing app designed to track individuals who are infected or at risk of contracting the COVID-19 virus. MEPs also emphasise the need for a coordinated approach in developing and using the apps to ensure their cross-border interoperability. This, of course, as we mentioned last week, could be a problem with the NHS digital approach of using a different app compared to the rest of Europe. European Data Commissioner Didier Reinders and Croatian State Secretary Nikolina Brunsch shared the MEP's views on the need to ensure that citizens can trust the safety of the app. Reinders responded to MEP's concerns by highlighting that national authorities will work together with the EU data protection authorities to ensure that the tracing apps comply with EU privacy and data protection laws in place. He also stressed that the Commission strives to ensure a common approach between EU countries so that the apps are interoperable. We've not had any update from the UK government on how the trials of the UK app are progressing on the Isle of Wight, but we are expecting an update from either Matt Hancock, the Secretary of State for Health, or Boris Johnson, UK Prime Minister, sometime in the coming week. And so we hope to be able to bring you an update on that in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. Research conducted by ILUX, a full-service IT support company here in the UK, has revealed that 13% of the workforce, so over 1 in 10, said that they didn't believe they were GDPR compliant whilst they were working from home. This is obviously an added concern at the moment, given that a large number of office workers are currently working from home in some form of remote working, thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. But the issue is not just about compliance, it's about support. Two-thirds of the 2,000 home workers that were questioned felt that they did not have enough support from their business owners when it comes to their IT with one in ten admitting that they felt their bosses were either too busy or too stressed to approach them. James Tilbury, the managing director at ILUX, said, Whilst as business owners we may be busy, stressed and frankly trying to keep our heads above water, it's not a time to be complacent. Asking employees to work from home and then not providing the right computer systems and security measures is a recipe for disaster. James went on to say, The last thing any business needs at this time is to lose valuable data, leave themselves open to cyber attacks or phishing, and leave themselves vulnerable to the unknown. It may only seem like a small number, but it's best not to be in that 10%. It's worth remembering, of course, that whilst the ICO has indicated that they are going to have some leniency, nonetheless, a data breach for your business or your organisation still risks a significant financial penalty. Remember, that can be up to 4% of your company's annual turnover. And remember that for a business, having a data breach or being found to be not compliant with GDPR could have significant implications on business relationships too. Tilbury went on to point out that home computers will most likely not have the latest antivirus, anti-spam and web protection tools installed. And so it is important wherever possible that employees working at home are using equipment supplied by the company and not using their home computers to perform company business. So something I think to just make everyone aware there of the potential danger and that one in ten don't feel comfortable and I think that's important. So why not this week if you do nothing else? 
just carry out a, an informal survey of your own staff. How do they feel working at home? Do they feel that they're being GDPR compliant? And if they've identified holes or you identify holes in their GDPR compliance, then of course please feel free to contact us at Insurity. Just drop us an email to podcast at insurity.co.uk and one of our specialists will get right back to you. This is an important coronavirus update. If you were listening to last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll remember us talking about the Hungarian government bringing in some legislation which effectively just overrode GDPR. Well, it's not surprising. It's come to the attention of the European Commission, and the European Commission is now examining Hungary's emergency regime, including government decrees affecting the country's labour code and the application of the GDPR, Vera Gerveva told the European Parliament on Thursday. Commission Vice President Jarova said the Commission is monitoring the situation in all states, but in the case of Hungary, I can reveal to you today that I have daily reports, adding that she's aware of the two people who were detained in relation to the spreading of so-called fake news. On a daily basis, we are establishing whether we can take legal action, said the Commissioner, who added that the Commissioner decided not to open infringement procedures yet. Just reminded that on the 4th of May, the Hungarian government announced plans to suspend its obligation to certain protections laid out in GDPR until the current state of emergency period had been declared over. A communications official of the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, which is responsible for GDPR's application across the EU, said that it is developing further guidance on Article 23 of the regulations, which allows national authorities to restrict data rights by way of legislative measures. After several interactions with the Hungarian Supervisory Authority, EDPB said that further discussion is necessary. At the moment, we cannot say what the outcome of those discussions will be. Civil society organisations have voiced their concerns in a letter on Monday, the 11th of May, addressed to the EDPB. In the letter, they said, We believe that this modification was not necessary to maintain quarantine rules, as the amendment does not make possible the collection or monitoring of data but concerns the restriction of rights to information, rectification, erasure and the right to protest, as well as the postponement of enforcement. Jarova said the Commission expects Hungary to come along with the other member states to release confinement measures and to come back to at least the old normal. The debate follows the Parliament's resolution that described the Hungarian government actions during the coronavirus outbreak as totally incompatible with European values. Jarova also supported the call with several MEPs for the conditionality of EU funds, which she said must remain part of the next long-term budget negotiations and, in quotes, keep its teeth. However, many parliamentarians have questioned the executive's hesitation to launch infringement proceedings against Hungary. Why is the Commission guardian of the treaty so reluctant to act in defence of European values? asked Luxembourg MEP Christoph Hansen. And why is the Council so afraid of its own shadow to act on member states that are persistently corrupting treaties and our EU values? Others said the debate is a continuation of the old row between Brussels and Budapest on migration. The reason for these attacks we know are the refusal of Hungary to adopt the EU migratory policy, said French MEP Nicolas Bay of the far-right identity and democracy group. This is being instrumentalised, it's being used to attack the government against the will of the people. The Hungarian government was not present at the session after PM Viktor Orban instead asked Justice Minister Judith Varga to represent the country. Varga was not allowed to speak in Orban's stead because, according to the letter of Parliament President David Sazzoli, the established practice of such kind of debates, the appropriate level of participation, is that of the head of state or government. 
The stubborn refusal by the Socialist President of the European Parliament, David Sazzoli, puts him at odds with principles of fair trial, impartiality and free speech, the ruling Fidesz party said in a statement yesterday. If it hasn't been clear already, we will need a deeply ready EU when the coronavirus situation is under control. And so we wait to see how this progresses. And we will, of course, keep you updated in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now, the rest of this week's news. The European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, has said that websites are still not doing enough to ensure consent from users for storing information particularly it's a third-party cookie, through the use of cookie walls. A cookie wall is the bar that you normally see pop up now on many, many websites, which normally occupies about a third of the screen and says about giving your consent, or it can appear also as a pop-up, which people can then either read and complete, or many people just click just outside it, so the pop-up disappears. Both of those, the EDPB is saying, aren't good enough in selecting consent from users to store information in third-party cookies. Now, you would of course know that consent is one of the six lawful bases for processing personal information in GDPR. But nonetheless, the European Data Protection Board has made clear that cookie walls and scrolling are not legitimate means of obtaining consent that meet the needs of GDPR. They've explained their rationale behind this, which is that in order for consent to be freely given, access to services and functionalities must not be made conditional on the consent of a user to the storing of information or gain of access to information already stored in the terminal treatment of the user, which is practically what happened to a cookie wall. They went on to offer an example where they said a website provider puts into place a script that will block content from being visible except for a request to accept cookies and the information about which cookies are being set and for what purposes data will be processed. There is no possibility to access the content without clicking on the accept cookies button. What they're saying then is that since the data subject is not presented with a genuine choice, consent has not been freely given. In a statement they said, in their view this does not constitute valid consent as the provision of the service relies on the data subject clicking the accept cookies button, it is not presented with a genuine choice of which cookies to accept. I.e., you know, you get a carte blanche where it just uh, accepts for all third-party cookies. What they're saying is that's not meeting the feeling behind GDPR, which is that every single cookie should be shown, every, especially every third-party cookie, should be shown and users can opt into or out of each individual cookie which obviously is much more difficult to code and also much more user-hostile in terms of the user coming to use your site and some sites that use a lot of third-party cookies. If you present that whole list to users, I suspect a lot of users just wouldn't bother and would go away and use another site which wasn't meeting the conditions anyway. Their argument is is that actions such as scrolling or swiping through a web page or similar user activity do not constitute a requirement of clear and affirmative action. Such actions may be difficult to distinguish from other activity or interaction by the user and therefore determining that an unambiguous consent has been obtained is not possible. Further, it will be difficult to provide a way for the user to withdraw consent in a manner that is as easy as granting it. So they're saying if you didn't have to tick a box in the first place, if you were going to follow that logic, then you should say you don't have to tick a box to withdraw consent, but clearly that's ridiculous, because otherwise how did you indicate you want to withdraw consent? So if you look at it that way round, you can sort of see the argument as to why they consider that just going past these bars without actually clicking anything, or just doing one big button saying click here, 
doesn't actually satisfy the requirements of GDPR. The EDPB says its position on Strollwing is clear-cut and companies using this approach to change consent are now on notice that they need to change. But there is an argument that the updated guidance on cookie walls simply doesn't go far enough. That's because many, if not most, companies are not using all-or-nothing cookie walls that force consumers to consent or go away. Instead, the bigger issue appears to be how consent management platforms are obtaining consent for cookies. Under existing guidelines, consent is not considered to be freely given if consumers are not provided the ability to give separate consent for different kinds of data processing where appropriate. As an example, a company would arguably be required to obtain separate consent for marketing and related data processing. Now, you might think, well, you use a cookie management platform for that, something like Quantcast, but in a study of the top five CMPs, cookie management platforms, used on Alexa's 10,000 websites in the UK, found that just 11.8% of them were compliant with GDPR. So we think that while this guidance is helpful, it perhaps still hasn't gone far enough, but we wait and see how companies in general respond to this requirement from the EDPB. And as we get any changes or updates or we spot any new surveys ourselves, we will of course bring them to you in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The 2020 Cyber Report has been issued this week and it contains some interesting updates on the burden and feeling about GDPR amongst the UK business community. The headline from the survey was that companies say that they are spending 40% of their IT security budgets on compliance burden and 43% say they have been reported to the ICO over GDPR. I've got to confess that personally I find that last video quite staggering, but presumably a lot of those reports weren't actually of complaints that were serious enough to be followed up by the ICO. Often imitated, but never duplicated. The survey which we mentioned in our previous article here on the GDPR Witcher Show also gave some indications of four of the top reasons why GDPR violations were reported to the ICO. One of those was the failure to assess risk. GDPR Article 35 requires regular data protection impact assessments, DPIAs, so organisations are always aware of the risk they're assuming. This means that organisations can't take a once I've done it, I've done a DPIA, I never need to do one again approach, but must audit and assess ongoing risk. This is particularly evident in the case of now many more people working from home, for instance, which would trigger a DPIA in many cases. The example which the ICO gives is that you don't check your tyres on your vehicle just once. You do it regularly to ensure ongoing safety. You should take the same approach to DPIAs. To give you an example of what can happen here, a Portuguese hospital, Centro Hospitalia Barrigio Montijo, was fined €400,000 in total for three violations, resulting to indiscriminate access to too many users, not applying appropriate technical and procedural measures to prevent sensitive data exposure, and most importantly, at this point, the inability to institute an ongoing process of risk assessment. So it really is important that you think about risk assessments and DPIAs, and of course, if you require any training in DPIAs, then do get in touch with us via podcast at insurity.co.uk and one of our specialists will be delighted to arrange some training for you. The other reason, not surprisingly perhaps, was failure to limit access. Article 51C of GDPR is where you'll find details about what you need to do to limit access and 
the same Portuguese hospital that we mentioned a few moments ago was also fined 150,000 euros because over 900 user accounts had doctor-level permissions allowed, even though less than 300 doctors actually worked at the hospital. This means that all patient data was accessible to all of those designated as doctors, regardless of their actual role. And it's perhaps best likened to a date on a field. You know, if you have a date on the field and you're controlling access to, I don't know, let's suppose a tarp up an event and only VIPs are allowed to park in the field, then make sure that only VIPs can get into the field. It's very important that you think about who can access what information because remember that people should, under GDPR, only be able to access the minimum data that they need to be able to perform their role within your organisation. The third thing found was the unauthorised collection of personal data. This can be either because a organisation is too generic in how it's gathering data, so it simply gathers far more data than it needs. But it can be, in effect, accidental as well. There was an incident in Austria where a company had its CCTV camera recorded not only the entrance to the establishment, but also a large portion of the pavement out the front. Now, what's the problem with that? You might say, well, there isn't a problem as long as they'd had a sign in the window visible to passers-by saying that they were being recorded, but they didn't. And so it is important that you do think that, you know, in all aspects of GDPR, that you are only gathering the information that you need to perform the process that you are performing on the data. One thing GDPR did was remove the ability to hold data because it might be useful one day. You really should only hold what is useful today. And the fourth reason was a failure to pseudomize sensitive data. It really is important that, particularly with sensitive medical data, that you anonymize the data or pseudomize the data as soon as you can. That way, if you do have a data breach, even if it is sensitive data, you have much less of a problem because it's unlikely that anyone could identify a particular individual from the data they've taken or gained access to. Whereas if you have real names there and perhaps real addresses too, then obviously it's much simpler for anyone accessing that data who shouldn't be accessing it via a data breach to make criminal use of that data. And hence, you're likely to find yourself with a much bigger fine or penalty from the ICO and also a claim for damages from those people who've had their data breached. There were many other reasons that that people were reported to the ICO, but I thought it was perhaps worth just highlighting those top four reasons for you. The worldwide GDPR practitioner and DPO community this week was surprised when a huge data dump including the personal information of tens of millions of people and where they've met, appeared on the internet, and yet, at the moment, no one knows quite where all this data came from. The breach includes almost 90 gigabytes of personal people's personal data, including details of where they've been and where they met people. But there's no clue at all as to where the information actually came from in the first place. Although the information has been hosted publicly and available to anyone, there's no hint about where it came from. The dump includes listings of individual people, including information on their social media sites, phone numbers and addresses. Unusually, however, it also includes details about where people have met and information about where people listed within the dump may know each other from. As a result, it's assumed that that the data has probably come from a customer relationship or CRM system, but no one knows where. Troy Hunt, who tracks such data breaches and runs the website haveibeenporn.com, that's have I been and then pwned.com to allow users to check if they've been caught up in data breaches, 
said he'd been unable to find any clue about what the software might be or how the data had become public. Nowhere, absolutely nowhere, was there any indication of where the data had originated from, he wrote in a blog post announcing the fine. Mr Hunt noted that there was no real way to protect one's data from being exposed in such a breach, given that it depends entirely on other people and the security of the systems that they are using. Mr Hunt has included email addresses within the data on his website at haveibeenporn.com, so if you want to check whether you've been included in this massive data dump, which at the moment no one knows quite what to do with or where it came from, then you can do so by going to his site. We hope, or would expect, that in the next week or two, it will become much clearer where this data emerged from, and obviously as soon as we know that, we'll bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Intersurf, one of the UK government's strategic suppliers, which maintains a number of stores and hospitals as well as transport networks such as London Underground, is recovering from a cyber attack which took place over last weekend that may have seen the details of up to 100,000 people stolen. It is understood that hackers hit the infrastructure of Interserve over the weekend and accessed the Human Resources Database at the outsourcing firm on 9th of May and stole information on current and former Interserve employees. Details taken include employee names, addresses, bank details, payroll information, next of kin details, HR records, date of absences and pension information. In a statement, Interserve confirmed it had been subject to a cyber attack. It said Interserve is working closely with the National Cyber Security Centre, NCSC, and Strategic Incident Response Teams to investigate, contain and remedy the situation. This will take some time and some operational services may be affected. Interserve has informed the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, we will provide further updates where appropriate. Interserve's employees, former employees, clients and suppliers are requested to exercise heightened vigilance during this time. Another construction firm, BAM, also appeared to have suffered a major data breach. According to a report by Building Magazine, a spokesperson said that it had been the subject of a significant cyber attack. In a statement, BAM Construct UK said, We have stood up extremely well to a significant cyber attack on our business, which forms part of the wave of attacks on public and private organisations supporting the national effort on COVID-19. Supplier and employee payments are being made, and so it is for our clients, subcontractors and our team, pretty much business as usual. We're uncertain in the second case of BAM Construct whether they have reported the incident to the ICO or not. We'll seek to confirm that during this week and bring you an update on both of these cases in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You've tried the rest and not impressed. Take a chance and try the best. Privacy group NOYB has filed a legal complaint against Google on behalf of an Austrian citizen claiming that the Android advertising ID on every Android device is personal data as defined by GDPR and that this data is being illegally processed. NOYB is the non-profit founded by Matt Srems, a lawyer and privacy advocate to focus on commercial privacy and data protection violations. It says that the core task of its office is to work on our enforcement projects and to engage in the necessary research for strategic litigation. The complaint against Google, which has been filed with the Austrian Data Protection Authority, is based on the claim that Google's Android operating system generates the advertising ID without user choice as required by GDPR. NOYB lawyer Stefano Rossetti said that in essence, when you buy a new Android phone, by adding a tracking ID, they ship you a tracking device. In response, Google said the advertising ID is a unique, user-resettable ID for advertising 
provided by Google Play services. It gives users better controls and provides developers with a simple standard system to continue to monetize their app. It enables users to reset their identifier or opt-out of personalized ads, formerly known as interest-based ads, within Google Play app. The opt-out is in Google settings, but when you do opt-out, it does not delete the advertising ID. It appears that the effectiveness of the opt-out is in part down to app developers, the status of the opt-out of interest-based advertising or opt-out of ads personalization setting must be verified on each access of the ID, Google's documentation state. There is an option to reset the ID, but when you do so, you get a new one. So this will only be effective long-term if you do that repeatedly. It's like cancelling your contract only under the condition you sign a new one, said Rossetti. The complaint raises key questions about privacy, choice and tracking. It states that the complainant completed a, con- a Google contact form to withdraw consent to use of the advertising ID, if consent had been given, which it disputed, and to object to its processing. Article 7 of the GDPR states that the data subject should have the right to withdraw his or her consent at any time. Article 21 is a right to object at any time to processing of personal data concerning him or her for marketing and profiling, following which the law states that the personal data shall no longer be processed for such purposes. The complaint says that there is no opt-in consent button for the advertising ID. Although users have to agree to the general Google privacy policy, according to the complaint, this consent was neither informed, specific, nor free. The reason they're saying it's not free, by the way, is that the user cannot use their phone without agreeing. Google responded to the request by stating that in the case of non-account holders, Google does not have the means to verify the identity of data subjects from an advertising ID, and therefore we cannot take specific action on the basis of the content contained in your email, and that you may immediately cease the posting of personal data related to advertising ID by resetting your advertising ID. However, GDPR states in Article 12 that the controller shall not refuse to act unless the controller demonstrates that it is not in a position to identify the data subject. The complaint claims that no technical or logical argument was provided as to why the identification of the complainant was not possible. Apple noted the complaint and said it has a similar advertising ID in iOS, but explains that this can be replaced with a non-unique value of all zeros to prevent the serving of targeted ads. The complaint requests that Google is ordered to permanently delete the advertising ID, provide access to data collected and be fined based on various GDPR breaches. The UK Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, has said that it has significant concerns about the lawfulness of the processing of special category data, which we've seen in the industry, and the lack of explicit consent for the processing. However, the watchdog recently stated that it decided to pause our investigation into real-time bidding in the ad tech industry because of COVID-19. It said that concerns about ad tech remain, and we aim to restart our work in the coming months when the time is right. So the complaint has been lodged, and as soon as we have any updates from the Austrian Data Protection Authority, we will of course bring them to you here in the next episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk and I look forward to speaking to you again same time, same place next week. Have a good week everybody and remember to keep your data safe. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.